Well, it's Sunday, so that means you must be ready to take a test. Isn't that correct? So, uh, this test is going to be composed of 10 questions, and we're going to see how well you do. You get to grade yourself. So, here's the test. All you have to do is you have to be able to name the, the company whose mission statement I will give you. So, let's see how well you do. Here's the first one. To connect the world's professionals, to make them more productive and successful. Think job search and professional networking. Who? Oh, oh, Gloria, what was it? LinkedIn. Oh, one point for Gloria. She gets the first one. Okay, here's the next one. And if you get this one um, wrong, you're a Neanderthal like me. <laughs> to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Think social media. Yes. Out loud? Facebook. Good. There's the second one. Okay. This one. I hope you get this one right. To accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. Think cars. Tesla. Good, good, good. Number That was number three. Number four. This one I know you're going to get right. To be the Earth's most consumer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they might want to buy online and endeavor to offer its customers the lowest possible prices. Oh, everyone got that one. That's Amazon. Okay. Think search engines on this one. To organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible and useful. Google. Oh, my, you're on a roll here. Okay. This one, if you get this one wrong, you just defined yourself, well, here it goes. <laughs> to be the premier purveyor of the finest coffee in the world while maintaining our uncompromising principles while we grow. Starbucks. Good. You're really doing well. Now, this one, if you get it wrong, you have never been there. To save people money so they can live better. Yes, Walmart. <laughs> yeah, you know it. Was that Miriam? You got that one right. Okay. <laughs> this one, you got to think disaster relief. Okay, here it goes. To prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. Red Cross. Good, good, good. I don't know if they've done this mission statement, but here's the mission statement. Think New York City. The maintenance of international peace and security. UN. Yes. Good. And this one, you got to think airlines. Dedication to the highest quality of customer service, delivered with a sense of warmth, friendliness, individual pride, and company spirit. Oh, we got you. <laughs> Starts with the same letter. Southwest Airlines. Okay, how did you do? A, B, C, D. What was your letter for today? Did you get some of them right? I hope so. Okay. Well, those are all kind of fun. These are the mission statements of um, organizations that we know. And, of course, almost every business today has a business statement or a mission statement. Because if you don't know what your business is or what you're trying to accomplish, you probably won't accomplish it. But this is different than First Baptist Church. But I'll bet you anything I could go into most churches in America today and ask them, what is your mission statement? Or what are you in business for? What are you trying to accomplish? And I'll bet you they could not answer that question very well. But I know people here can.
Do you know why I know that? Because we've just been doing it. Over the last several, a couple of months, in all of the life groups here at, at First Baptist Church, we've gone, been going through a series of Bible passages which try to help us define what is the business of a church. The business of a church is not to build buildings, though we've been doing this all over the world for thousands of years. It is not to have meetings or to give lectures or even necessarily just to baptize people. What is our business? Now, if I asked you here at this church, I think most of you could probably answer the question quite well. And you'd even do better if I said, what is the main passage in the Bible that tells us what we're supposed to do as a church? What you would say is, Matthew 28, you knew the passage of Scripture. So that's where we're going to turn today. We're going to turn to a passage of Scripture. It's short, only four verses. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. And the passage is called the Great Commission. And of course, the one who gave this to us is Jesus, which of course makes a lot of sense because uh, he is the one that we follow as Christians. Now, at, at the end of each of the Gospels, the Gospels are the books of the Bible called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by three people who knew Jesus. Two of them are disciples, Matthew and John. One of them knew Jesus but is not a disciple, Mark, and one of them never met Jesus, ever. His name is Luke. He's a historian. He tells us that. He interviewed the eyewitnesses to tell us about the story of Jesus. So we have four witnesses, four people who wrote about the life of Jesus. Three of them knew him personally. John is his best friend on earth. Matthew is one of his disciples, as is, and Mark is one of his followers, and Luke's a historian. Each one of them tell us something Jesus said at the very end of his life, just before he left this world. And as you know, the last events in Jesus' life were his crucifixion. He was executed as a criminal. Then, three days later, he rose from the dead, the most significant event in all of human history. Somebody walked out of a grave, never to walk again. There's never been the likes of it in human history, only one person that we know of. And then, in the presence of people who actually had eyes, who were just like us, and there were hundreds of them, they watched him just lift up and go into heaven, right through the clouds. To my knowledge, that has never happened to anyone in all of human history, and you have hundreds of eyewitnesses, hundreds. And of Jesus' resurrection, you have almost thousands. So these are not crazy people. These are people just as sane as every one of us here who saw with their very own eyes somebody who was crucified, the most, one of the most brutal deaths you can ever die. And then three days later, after his body was starting to decompose, you could say, he walked out of a grave never to die again. That is the centerpiece of Christianity. And just before Jesus left this world, he gave to his disciples their business plan. He said to them, this is what I want you to do. And so you can um, assume that that is very, very important. The first thing that we need to notice, and if we look at the first verses of this, this is verses 16 and 17. Look at what it says. Then the 11 disciples. Now you see the, uh, the number 11 is different now because it used to be 12. But as you know, Judas is gone. So now it's 11. 
went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Let's stop right there. The place is very important. Let me give you a a very brief, very true, very tragic story with a good ending. Around the year 70 AD, the Romans were fed up with the Jewish people. This is 40 years after Jesus was on here, here on earth. The Jewish people had rebelled against the Romans, and the Romans were hugely powerful. The Jews were a tiny group of people. The Romans were sick and tired of them. They decided, you're done. They came into Israel, killed mo- many of the Jewish people, and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. But a 1,000 people who were zealots, these were po- people who hated the Roman government, they fled from Jerusalem and other places to a mountain fortress built by Herod the Great. And they got on top of this fortress, a thousand of them, and it was impregnable. You couldn't stop it. You couldn't get up there. And they had enough food to last up there for years. I've been there many times. Well, the Romans were so tired of what the Jewish people had done that the Roman um, emperor, Vespasian, he sent a whole legion of Roman soldiers to surround the mountain and take over the mountain, but they couldn't conquer it. It was impossible. It was an impregnable fortress. So you know what they did? They used Jewish slave labor to build a siege ramp up the side of the mountain. took them months to do it. They used Jewish slave labor because the Jewish people would not throw rocks down and kill their own brothers and sisters. So they built the siege ramp. And on the day that the Romans breached the walls and got into this fortress, 960 people had all committed suicide. They killed themselves rather than be conquered by and enslaved by the Romans. Well, let me fast forward 1,900 years. From that point, for almost 2,000 years, the Jewish people never had a homeland. But then in 1948, the UN voted to grant them a homeland And now for the first time, the Jewish people were able to gather in Israel again. And this mountain called Masada is holy ground. And so now to this day, when Jewish soldiers take their oath of allegiance, both men and women, as you know, men and women are both required to be in the army in Israel. They take their oath of allegiance on Masada. Why? Because it's holy ground. It's special ground. Masada, they say, shall never fall again. You see, the place where something happens is often very significant. And so it is with Jesus. Here, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he lived in Galilee. Galilee is the the poor section of the country, the poorest section. In fact, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. This is not where Jewish people lived in mass. This is where Gentiles lived. This was an area controlled by Gentiles. But Jesus lived in an area controlled by Gentiles, the poor, uneducated, unsophisticated part of the country. And almost all of his followers were from Galilee. They were country bumpkins for the most part. And where he performed most of his miracles and carried out his ministry was in Galilee and We don't know where this took place, but there are two mountains. Mountains in Israel are like molehills in Wyoming. They're little, but there are two mountains where very significant things happened in Galilee. One is probably what's called Mount Tabor, and that's where 
Jesus took a few of his disciples, including John, and he took them up on this mountain, and Jesus stood there, and all of a sudden, he started to glow. A human being started to look like the sun. That's never happened in human history. Only one person. Well, maybe in Wyoming at the uranium mines. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a second. I don't know. But he started to glow. It's called his transfiguration. He said, I'm going to show you what I'm really like. And so he gave them a little glimpse of who he really was, the glorious God in human flesh. The other mountain is what's called the Mountain of Beatitudes. That's where Jesus gave his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, etc. So it's probably one of these two mountains, a very significant place. Jesus brought his disciples and said, Here in this holy ground, that is associated with my transfiguration, perhaps, that is associated with my ministry to Gentiles, I'm going to give you your commission. Think about your own life. Um, I heard about it a little bit this morning, um, about this summer when they had the camp. I'll bet you for all of us in this place, you can probably think of some place where God did something special in your life. Maybe it was a youth camp. For, for many of us, that's probably the, uh, the case. Maybe it, maybe, it is, um, maybe it's in a church service. Maybe, maybe it was at home. But the place is always associated with something significant that God did. Jesus took his disciples to this holy ground. And then what happened? Look what's next. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were still wrestling. That's really what it means there. I mean, can you imagine if one of your friends was brutally, brutally, brutally killed? And you had the funeral service, and you saw the casket and the body, and they put him in, into, in, into a tomb. And then three days later, you're walking the main street, and there he is. What? What? What are you doing? I mean, you would not believe what you saw. Any normal person wouldn't believe. After all, when did you last see somebody who was brutally murdered walk, uh, walk in the streets of Main Street? When did you last see that? No, you've never seen that. No one's ever seen that in human history. But here, this Jesus who was brutally killed on a cross, and thousands of people saw it. Here he's walking around now. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. You'd have a few doubts. But what else would you do? He started to worship him. And by the way, remember, the Bible is completely opposed. If you ever worship anyone or anything apart from God alone, that's blasphemy. And here they're worshiping Jesus. Pretty significant. So that's the setting. And settings, as I said before, are, um, are very, very important. In a place of great significance, something very, hap- very important happened. And by the way, I hope maybe for, for Slade and, and Lorde and KJ, this day, this place will have some significance to you because it's the place the day on which you were baptized. It's significant. So now Jesus brings his disciples to this very important place. And this is what he says next. And Jesus came to them and said, look at that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
Now, that's one of the craziest statements you could ever make. Can you imagine any person who's even remotely sane, that has even one ounce of intellect, who could actually say that? Is there any human being who could say that without you laughing in their face? No, that is absolutely ridiculous. It's one of the most ridiculous statements that has ever been saying. And here's this man said, all authority. I have all authority of heaven. I have all the authority of earth. And in Revelation, it says, and I have all the authority of everything under the earth. I rule the cosmos. All authority in the cosmos has been given to me. So there's one above, the one who gave it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, either you laugh in his face or you perk up your ears because that is an incredibly crazy statement. And no one in human history has ever made that statement except Jesus alone who has any amount of sanity. Only one. Now you might ask, well, what right has he to say that? Well, here's the right. Do you, uh, maybe you remember C.S. Lewis's famous, he calls it his trilemma. It's called the liar, the lunatic, or the Lord. If I went today on the streets of Riverton or any place in the world and said, what do you know about Jesus? Many people would say, well, yeah, I've heard his name, or I've used that in my swear words all the time. But many people say, well, I think he was a good man. That's not possible. It's absolutely impossible that Jesus was a good man because no person can say that statement. So what C.S. Lewis said is this, Jesus is either a liar When he said that, he's a big fat liar, or he's absolutely crazy. He's a lunatic. Good people don't make stupid statements like that. So he can't be a good person. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He's God. Those are the only options you have. You don't have any fourth option. Now, you might think, well, what authority did he have? This week, I thought through through what I know about Jesus, and I was stunned. What was his authority? Let me briefly tell you his authority. Remember, he lived on this planet. He walked soil pretty much like Wyoming. He was here. The first authority he expressed great power over was over over Satan. Satan himself. Sometimes people say to me, and that shows how little they know about the Bible. They say, well, Satan tempted me. I say, no, he didn't. Satan has never tempted any of us, ever. You know why? There's only one Satan. He's not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. There's only one Satan. And he's not messing with us, I can promise you. He's got much bigger fish to fry. We may have been tempted by demons, but never by Satan. But Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. The highest of the angels God ever made who went bad to the dark side of the force. And Jesus confronted him and says, away from me, Satan expressed complete power over Satan and all the demons. Get out of him! He would just say a word and the demons would flee because he had absolute authority over the demons. He had authority over sickness. People, by the thousands who were sick of all kinds of diseases, he healed them. He had authority over the weather. When, who was the last person you knew who controls the weather? Have you ever met anyone who can... I don't mean make some mumbo-jumbo. I mean, on the spot, say, storm, stop. It's gone. In a second. Who has done that? 
Who in human history has ever done that? And these are, by the way, normal people by scores of them who saw that with their own eyes. They were there. And they said this. This is what the Bible says. Who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. There's no one on earth like that. He had authority, he said, to forgive sins. Now, if someone does something wrong to me, I can forgive them. But I can't stand before you here today and say, you know, people, I forgive all your sins today. You go, yeah, you're right. That'd be nice. I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that for myself. But he was in a group of people who says, I forgive your sins. Who can do that? God alone. He had authority over the calendar. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus said, these are his words, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He could have said, I am the Lord of the calendar. After all, we named the calendar after his birth, A.D. and B.C. All authority. He had authority over physics. He could take a little bit of food and feed 5,000, and on another occasion, 4,000. He could walk on water. He could pluck money from fish's mouths. He could heal blind people, and he could raise the dead. He had authority over the future. He could predict the future. He had authority over animals. Do you remember what's called his, his, his triumphal entry? He said to his disciples, go find a colt on which no one has ever ridden. Bring it to me. They brought a colt on which no one had ever ridden. And then Jesus sat on this colt. And then hundreds, maybe thousands of people started screaming, raising branches, and doing all kinds of crazy things. How many people could ride on such a colt? You tell me. Has there ever been a person who could ride on an un a colt on which no one has ever ridden, where people are going crazy all around you, screaming and doing all kinds of things, and that colt doesn't buck you off? Jesus had authority. He had authority over trees. He said to this tree, no more will you have any fruit. And the next day the tree had withered. He had authority over the religious leaders. He had authority over the future. He had authority over death. He had authority over eternal life. He had authority over everything. In fact, in the book of Revelation chapter 5, it says, there's no one worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth except Jesus alone to unlock the future. This is our Jesus. Unbelievable. I, you know, sometimes people like compare Jesus to a prophet, like to the prophet Muhammad or Baha'u'llah. I go, no, no. He does not belong in any list with any so-called prophet. Or they put him in a list with some enlightened soul like the Buddha. So, oh, no, no, he doesn't belong in that list. Or, list. or they put him in some list of would-be saints. Or No, he does not belong in any such list. There is no one like Jesus. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he said. What are you going to say? Well, here's the Great Commission. Grammatically, of course, remember, this was originally written in Greek. Now, in the Greek language, there's only one command here. It looks like four of them, but there's only one. That command is make disciples. And those four disciples, that one command, is modified by three participles. Those are I-N-G words that modify it. The word go is actually going. And then you see baptizing. And then we're going to see in the next verses, teaching. Three modifiers. 
So the major command is only one. The command is this, make disciples of all nations. That's it. There's our business plan. Done. Jesus said, here is your mission. Make disciples of all nations. What is a disciple? It's a follower. That's all it means. Make followers of who? Jesus. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The greatest being in the cosmos along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Make followers of him. There's your business plan. Wow. Well, what's a disciple? Well, a disciple is one who follows Jesus. One who, as time goes on, if you follow Jesus, you start to look like Jesus. Not physically, but you start to think like Jesus thought. And you start to live like Jesus did. And you treat people like Jesus did. And that's what we're called to do. And interestingly, in the process of making his disciples, it took him three years. But for the first year or year and a half, he only issued two commands. Repent and follow me. That's all he said. Just watch me. And that's why, as Christians, one of our highest responsibilities is to study the life of Jesus, because that's what we're all about. That's our task. That's our mission, is to follow Jesus. So we want to know, what was he like? How did he deal with people? How did he deal with religious leaders? Oh, he got in big trouble with them. How did he deal with the common people? How did he deal with people who were on the outside, disenfranchised people. How did he deal with people? How did he deal with women? How did he deal with men? How did he deal with children? How did he deal with backsliders? How did he deal with rebels? How did he deal with religious folks? How did he do it? That's our task. Our task is to follow Jesus. A, um, a song I learned, and I'll bet you, some of you did as well. I wish I could say I practiced it, but I, I have sung it. Many times. You probably know the words. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Remember the next verse? Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, I will still follow. Though no one goes with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, following the culture behind me. The cross before me, following the culture behind me. No turning back. No turning back. That's what a disciple is. Well, just to make it to finish, how do you do it? Um, go back to the previous slide, and we'll see the three ING words. The first thing is go or going. Therefore, going, while you're going, in other words, get up and go. Get off your pew. Don't think you're going to become a follower of Jesus by sitting on your rear end. Get up and go. Take initiative. As you're going, in, as you live in your life, follow Jesus and help others to follow Jesus. And how does that happen? Well, if you're going to follow Jesus, first of all, you have to make a, a commitment to do so. That's what baptizing is about. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've got to initiate the process somehow, somehow. This is where a person makes a formal claim, just as Lorde and Slade and KJ did this morning. They said, I have decided to follow Jesus. They didn't do it in a the closet. 
They did it in a church. You don't have to do it in a church. You could do it in the river. You could do it in a bathtub. You can, it doesn't matter where. What matters is that we say, I have made a choice to follow Jesus. And then what do you do? Well, teaching. That's the Teaching? No, it doesn't say just teaching. You see, there's more than that. It's not enough just to teach. Our task is to teach them to obey. So it's not enough just to fill our minds with what Jesus said, because our task is to help people to know what Jesus said, to know how Jesus lived, to know what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and then follow him. That's all it is. Another hymn I, I learned as a child, and I wish I again I followed this all the time, but I don't. Remember, you could probably sing it with me. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Sounds simple. Trust means you take God at his word, take Jesus at his, at his word, and you do what he said. That's, that's rocket science, I think. No, it's, it's very simple. You just do what he said once you understand what he was like and what he offers to us. Well, he doesn't leave us with just out there hanging. He said, there's one last thing in the Great Commission. He said, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He began with a statement of his all-encompassing authority, and he ends with a promise of his presence. He says, you don't have to do this on your own. As a matter of fact, if you try to do this on your own, I can promise you, you will fail. You will not succeed in following Jesus on your own. You need God's help. We all need God's help. That's what the Holy Spirit is about. And what is Jesus doing right now? Twiddling his thumbs? He says, hey, I did it 2,000 years ago. I did it all. No, the Bible says he's up there right now pleading our case, defending us, interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit, not in heaven, but right in our lives, inside of us, is helping us to follow Jesus. That's what he's doing. Jesus says, I promise you, you follow me. I'm going to be with you to the end of the road. When's that? When I bring you to heaven. There's the end of the road. And then, that's not the end of the road. That's just the start. That's the start of the really good stuff. You haven't seen the good stuff yet. It's still to come. Well, there's our mission. There's a famous um, um, person in the business world, Stephen Covey, and he's written many books. But one of his most famous line is this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Sounds like a bunch of double talk, but it's actually the main thing we can do as Christians is to keep the main thing the main thing. What if someone came from Mars right now and, uh, and, and they'd never been to Earth and, and they, they came to Riverton and they decide they're just going to visit the churches of Riverton and they don't know anything about Christianity. They don't know squat. And all they're going to do is they're going to try to come into our churches and answer the question, what do you think their mission statement might be? Well, they would come in and they might say, well, I think their mission is to have meetings. I think their mission is to listen to lectures. I think their mission is to sing some songs. No. Well, we remember several months ago, um, Stan Reeb was here with the, with the our denomination, helping us with an assessment. And um, he, he said that so often ch ch churches 
lose sight of our mission. In fact, the Great Commission has sometimes been called the Great Omission because we don't do it. Warren Wiersbe, whose commentary some of the life groups have been reading, he wrote this, In many respects, we have departed from the pattern of the Bible. In most churches, the congregation pays the pastor to preach, win the lost, and build up the saved, while the church members function as cheerleaders if they are enthusiastic or spectators. The converts are one, baptized, and given the right hand of fellowship, and then they join the other spectators. How much faster our churches would grow, and how much stronger and happier our church members would be if each one of us were discipling other believers. Because that's our job. Our mission statement is we are people who follow Jesus. And our mission is to help others come to know Jesus as their Savior and follow Jesus too. And then we put a bunch of us together in a community of people who are following Jesus, and that is called a church. And we don't meet just to sing some songs and listen to a lecture and build buildings. We exist to help each other follow Jesus, to know him and to follow him and to spread that message to the whole world. That's who we are. We'll end with a fictitious story. In a town near a river, which is full of fish, there is a fisherman's club. Week after week, the fishermen in this club meet to talk. They talk about their responsibility to fish, and their slogan was, We live to fish! They talk about the many types of fish that could be caught in the river, and how important it is to have different fishing techniques. They occasionally search for new and better methods of fishing, And they point to all the stuffed fish on the walls, and they talk about how great the great fishermen of the past were. These meetings happened for many, many years as all the fishermen continued to declare that fishing was their primary goal in life. But in all that time, one thing they never did. They never went fishing. They knew all the techniques They constantly reminded each other of the importance of fishing. Their lives revolved around meetings and discussions about fishing. They heard stories about fish being caught, but they never actually tried it. Can you be a real fisherman or woman? After year after year, you never go fishing. And so who are we? Well, I didn't make up the fishing. Jesus did. He said, follow me. If you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men who go fishing. And our job is to help people, whoever we meet, wherever we go, to know this Jesus who is the most important person by light years of anyone this planet has ever seen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that together we could live out the song, we have decided to follow Jesus, and that we would be people We simply just trust you and we obey you. And people for whom following Jesus is a delight. Oh, I pray that that would be said of us here at First Baptist Church. That we would be faithful followers of the one infinitely greater than we are who died for us, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.